Summer travels have finally settled down a bit. For me, not for you. I am in Canada right now. We flipped time zones, so you had to wake up Kinda. early instead. I'm on, I'm on MST. Which is like not a real time zone. Which is a time zone no one knows about. I swear to God, Mountain Standard Time. Who else is on Mountain Spencer. Standard Time? Spencer's on, yeah. Shout out to Spencer K for being in the same time zone as Eugene. This is Making It Up, a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Kan. We don't always have all the answers, but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation. If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. Should we get into it? Yeah, let's get into it. Are we going to do rock, paper, scissors? Yep. Okay. Are you going to count or something? <laughs> I was hoping you would count, but yeah, I can count. Ready? One, two, three. Wow. What a You delay. can't see it. Mine's paper. What's yours? Mine's scissors. Uh, this is such an honor system. Rock, paper, scissors. Okay. All I'm right. Pick who goes first. Uh, how about you go first? Okay. Awesome. All right, so my topic today comes from Breaking Smart, which is a technology analysis site written by Venkatesh Rao. And he recently published this mini podcast episode titled Memes, Brands, and Missions. And it comes with an illustration that's pretty interesting to me. And that's really why I picked it, because of the illustration, I have to say. It was like, oh, this is an interesting illustration of something that I've thought about. Just to start off with some definitions, which he begins with is like, what is a brand and what is a meme? So a brand, as he describes it, is a marketing concept with taglines, logos, advertisements, and with the right type of branding, you attract the correct kind of attention to your product and service that leads them to believe in what you're selling. A meme, in this case today, we're talking about the little fragments of internet culture that are borrowed from popular culture and recoded to say something else. So we're going to take a little bit of a light break right now. Eugene, do you have a favorite meme? No, but it, I feel that memes happen so frequently that I have a meme of the moment. Okay, so what and is your my, meme of the moment? My meme of the moment was basically the video, the original video was a guy playing <laughs> paper, rock, scissors with one of the air traffic controllers outside of his airplane. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I've seen so that one. So this is crazy because if you think about it, I only saw that within the last, I don't know, 48 hours maybe? Less than three days. But you've seen it too, right? Mm-hmm. So the way that that was reappropriated as a meme was my boyfriend can be friends with anybody uh, or something yeah. like that. It was, on, it was on Fuck Jerry. But I think that that is like the thing that kind of comes and goes. Because um, a lot of times you see that imagery is reappropriated, right? With different messages. Yeah, that's like kind of the essence of what a meme is. is like something that's taken from popular or mainstream culture and then edited to say something else within that format. So like that video that you described 
someone could come up with another like clever caption or, you know, edit the video. So there's like, I don't know, a certain face over the air controller guy. And that would like say something different as well. Mm -hmm. Um, one of my favorite memes is the guy holding the anime guy holding up his hand and looking at a butterfly. And then the caption is like, is this blank? And then it's been riffed on like 10 million different times to say like, is this X, Y, Z? I don't, you know what? I whenever I see that meme, I never look at it. I don't know why. I just, it doesn't resonate with me. I know maybe because the first time I saw it, I got confused. And then since then I've never looked at it. So it's like. <laughs> This is a dumb example. I got it off of the internet just now where it's like maybe the butterfly is labeled art career and then the caption at the bottom is, is this suffering, for example? And I don't know why I like this meme so much, but anyway, this is enough explanation of what a meme is. So a meme can attract attention to brands, right? Because today we're focusing on like the relationship between brands and memes, but it can be like hyper-focused on this like tiny thing and it's also not usually within the original thing's control, like what that meme says about it. And so the meme could be friendly about what it's riffing on, or it could be hostile, right? And so what Breaking Smart gets into from this point is like, okay, what is the relationship between a brand and a meme? And he says there's like two possible flows, which is where the illustration comes in. It can either be top-down authoritarian where the brand starts with this like pure mission. These are our aspirational goals. And that becomes this bureaucratic brand. We can only say this about our product and our service. And what this results in is either best case, really lifeless memes, like memes that aren't funny and don't really attract any attention, basically just flop. Or it can lead to hostile, wild memes where people just make fun of the brand because of its like top-down mission, the way that it's trying to communicate itself. Mm -hmm. The other possibility suggested is that instead of having this like top-down flow from mission down to memes, you go the other way, bottom up, where you have you obviously have your product and service. So you, you don't start with nothing. You have your product, your service. And then you engage with the internet in this friendly way to cultivate what he calls friendly wild memes. Kind of sounds like feral animals. So you have these like wild memes around your product and you have like your own brand space. And hopefully like this combination of memes with your brand lead to robust material that creates this charismatic brand. And eventually that will turn into this is in quotes, a culture code style mission. So this is kind of lingo used in Breaking Smart, where culture code is from this French author named Clotaire Raphael, who says that you can unpack what lies behind a brand's popularity or a brand's image with the right research. So essentially what Breaking Smart is saying is that you can cultivate from like these robust wild memes, a charismatic brand, and then figure out backwards from that what your mission looks like that's the article in a nutshell do you think that you could go and create an example like are there any tangible examples yeah yeah i think this is maybe what will be helpful for for listeners to understand because even even then like i think that as i look at the pyramid that he's drawn like it makes sense 
but then seeing real life examples might make it a bit easier. Okay, so on the left hand side, the top down authoritarian direction, and he does say, you know, companies are not usually purely one or the other. So in the following segment, I'm not saying that these are specifically just one side or the other, but my example for the top down flow is actually the New York Times. So I saw this tweet from the New York Times recently, which it took me a surprisingly long time to dig up. Give me one second. I have it in one of these tabs. Okay, here we go. All right. So the New York Times on August 11th tweeted, yeah, it's time for the summer, colon. And then the next five lines are just one capital letter at the start of the line. So it spells out S-U-M-M-E-R from top to bottom. And then after the R, it says race to have the best pool float of the season. And this is a riff of a text meme, I guess, or like a text format that people have been using where it's like, remember kids, don't do drugs, colon. And then it's like D-R-U-G. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the S is like, I don't know self-care blah 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 or whatever it is that i've just made up on top of my head is very poor and like i saw this and it just it made me unhappy <laughs> like seeing the new york times attempt to use this text format for such a boring purpose like it just doesn't land for me at all like, yeah, it's time for the summer, like use, choosing the word summer to break down, whatever. My point is that, like, I don't think the New York Times successfully did this. Mm -hmm. And also, I think the New York Times has been undergoing accurate criticism about the way they have been covering Trump, kind of inconsistencies between language in their titles and like the content in their articles. And ultimately, people feel unsatisfied with the flimsiness of the editorial board right now at the New York Times. And I feel like if, I mean, I know they do many, I'm sure they have many brand strategies, but if one of their brand strategies is to try to like tweet in these meme formats, like I just think that is a insufficient band-aid. And to go back to the pyramid would be to say, I do think the New York Times is too precious about its brand and it's not open to having it be criticized and it's not able to like play with that criticism in a way that you know both diffuses it and deals with it meaningfully i'm not saying like memes are the way to solve like all their issues but i do think like that relationship with the consumer through like the internet discourse could be one way you, you know one thing this reminds me of is you remember Less so now, but a few years ago, the whole cereal mag meme of great light, coffee, and a nice table with the magazine. No, like, I don't remember. Where does that, that okay. where does that fit within this? Does that sort of more in the vein of the New York Times? Was this a meme that cereal mag did itself? No, it's just like it would became sort of a, a representation of cereal and kinfolk like those types of magazines ah. you know if you did like a search on a hashtag like all the images kind of look the same right in terms right. of people sharing that magazine right so like that's just a wild meme that is like mildly hostile right so it's like at mm -hmm. this bottom of the pyramid and then what cereal or kinfolk i don't know the situation but 
if zero-year-old kinfolk came out and were really defensive about that, like they said, like, no, like we use really selective photographers under like innovative conditions. If like they buckled down on saying that, then that would be like mm-hmm. top down. But if instead they were like, oh, hey, yeah. Or like if they even posted themselves like, oh, yeah, like we did five shoots that were exactly the same, then that would be like working with it. Got it. And responding to it, not to like put themselves down, but I'm sure there's a way to like respond to that comment because it's not super hostile, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. it's not, that's, yeah, it's like this mildly hostile thing. So you could work with it and say like, oh yeah. But do you think that this underlying piece, like, do you think that brands and their positioning have changed in the sense that in, in a previous generation, top down was the way brands were built and that's how they position themselves. But the current era focuses on bottom up. Yeah. Yeah. So this is one of my questions I had which is I don't think that just a bottom-up way is successful because you have to have some backbone, right? Like you have to have some idea of like what your brand stands for before you let like the internet kind of respond to what you're doing. Because if you just let them dictate all of your core values, then I feel like that's really wishy-washy as a company and internally like you wouldn't know what where you were standing. You would just let people dictate what it is you represent. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's just like unavoidable, this meme conversation, because people are so used to criticizing brands online now. Like it's so common to like publicize like, oh, Delta bumped me on my flight and then didn't compensate me and then lost my dog, you know? So Mm -hmm. if people are going to do that anyway, then it's really hard for companies to avoid being a part of it. Like, they're just not, in the old days, like, excluded from that conversation. It used to be previously, I think, like, you would privately tell your friends, like, oh, hey, like, I took Delta, and then they lost my dog, and I'm really sad about it. But now, because we're also used to sharing this stuff on the internet, and it's it, the pro is that then people will know, right? Mm-hmm. You're being transparent about, like, a company's quality. So you can't not, res- I don't think you can not respond to that. Yeah, I just wonder if the future of brands really is about that connection. I think it actually ties into our next topic as well, is that when it comes to brand positioning, everyone wants that sort of level of connectivity and quote-unquote authenticity. And I say that with air quotes because I think that we've we've discussed at length what is authenticity today and questioning what you thought was authenticity in the past right? Yeah. And I think that's the one of the interesting things is that brand building now changes significantly because before brands were telling you what to buy, now it's as though buying is secondary to connection, but you're under the belief that creating that connection and whatever that connection looks like might also change, right? Based on where we are currently within culture. Yeah. But what I'm saying is that as that connection is fostered, the, the spill-off is into buying stuff or consuming stuff or consuming your brand. I just had that conversation on that subject with Anna Sien, who works at Anchor and who has been doing marketing and brand strategy for 10 years. And really a lot of her work focuses on the communication incidental to the product stuff that will eventually lead to the selling of the product or the service, but that's not the starting point. Mm -hmm. 
I do have an example for the bottom up one, which is Wendy's. Are you familiar with the Wendy's? I'm pretty familiar with Wendy's as a conscious, socially conscious in terms of, you know, being aware of what's going on in social media culture, etc. Yeah. Okay, cool. So Wendy's is, yeah, pretty well known. I haven't heard anything recently, like in the last couple of months, but they were viral for a period of time. I want to say 2017, 2018 for their Twitter account being super fun. Like to they would respond to real users in like a really acerbic, biting way, but never, you know, like personally offensive. So they really like did this line of like, you know, we're defending our brand and we're like making fun of you, but we're doing it in like a lighthearted way where you're not going to be super offended and like hate on us. And most people will find this like really fun. So I think that's like the golden, my golden example of this bottom up, because it started with the company deciding, hey, we want to give our Twitter presence a real character. Like we don't want to just be like standard customer service type. So we're going to do that. And the internet didn't really care for a long time. Mm -hmm. But then people started picking up on some of the comments and it led to like a flood of attention eventually. But it was like this ongoing relationship that Wendy's fostered like semi-intentionally, but also like semi-organically. Yeah, maybe give a concrete example. Yeah, so in 2016, Wendy's tweeted, our beef is way too cool to ever be frozen. And then this person who seems like a real person, like not a Wendy's plant, said, your beef is frozen and we all know it. Y'all know we laugh at your slogan, fresh never frozen, right? Like, you're really a joke. Wendy says, sorry to hear you think that, but you're wrong. We've only ever used fresh beef since we were founded in 1969. Fuggy D, which is the name of this Twitter user, says, so you deliver it raw on a hot truck? Wendy says, where do you store cold things that aren't frozen? And Thuggy D says, y'all should give up. McDonald's got you guys beat with the dope-ass breakfast. And Wendy says, you don't have to bring them into this just because you forgot refrigerators existed for a second there. Like, that's pretty good. So I don't know if anyone finds reading out tweets really funny, but it was good. I think it's pretty good. I, I think that overall, maybe, maybe at some point, like, it's not all more bangers, but I think for the most part, they had a sort of tone of voice that was self-aware. I think that's the ultimate thing is like self-awareness seems to be the the most important and most difficult trait to master because self-awareness also requires you to be open and vulnerable in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, self-awareness, but, knowing, you know, these are things about our brands that are totally defensible. We're going to stand by the fact that we have fresh beef and like that's never something we're going to apologize for. But we're also mm-hmm. open to like, other criticisms and like playing around with that yeah is that what you meant yeah like i think that that that's a good example and just understanding because the the way that you look at it now is brand building as we know it is almost never focused on the end of the sort of user journey Mm -hmm. so what, what i mean by that is like back to what anna might have mentioned is that She's building a community around something yeah. that is not necessarily focused on the product she works for or she's yeah. selling. And yeah. that will be 
in in perpetuity i think you know the thing that will drive how we move forward right like that's why influencers are fashion designers now mm-hmm. right i think what whatever these people that have distribution and audience whatever they do it's like it's always going to track back into something else and i think that is the one thing that for better or worse is the the big fundamental shift going on here mm-hmm. yeah i think that's on the money like i think it's an, an interesting way of looking at because memes themselves some people hate memes they think it just like dominates the conversation but i find them as such an effective for better or worse effective tool to communicate what's going on in culture at any given moment in time within you know a split second yeah it's weird because when you get a meme it's almost like a self-congratulatory pat on the back it's like i'm aware of what's going on in culture Like, that's why I think they're so effective, right? Like, don't you feel that's the same thing? It's like, when when you see a meme, you don't think so? You disagree? I don't congratulate myself for understanding memes. I think to myself, oh, I've spent too much time online. Okay. Um, Well, but then some people probably are the opposite. Like, oh, well, I don't get this. Like, I think when you don't understand something, that's never really a good feeling, right? Yeah. That's kind of what I'm getting at. Memes is because they're extremely of the instant, which is what you said. And they're just this perfect, like you said, this perfect current snapshot of how people feel about different things, whether that's a TV show or an actress or a politician or pressing news items. People memeify everything. And I don't always agree with the memes out there. I also don't always understand them. But it is super fascinating to think of them as these like tiny artifacts constantly being created that describe our moment in culture yeah yeah that's it that's it from me all right let's move on then let's go further into the authenticity tunnel yeah the authenticity spiral of despair My topic this week focuses on something that we've actually talked about before, but the reason why I wanted to bring it back up is that I thought it was interesting to see where we've, how far we've advanced since we first spoke about it. So my topic this week is Japanese pop culture takes world stage through virtual influencer. So this story originally appeared in Kyoto by virtue of Kimi Robinson. If you're unfamiliar with a virtual influencer, it's basically a rendering of a human made to look as real as possible. And these people obviously are controlled by a team and their goal is to kind of exercise and showcase human traits, right? Whether it's doing human things, uh, having a point of view on whatnot. These are kind of the interesting sort of um, developments that are happening within that space. So most recently, following the footsteps of Lil Michaela and Shudu, those are probably the two biggest ones that I'm familiar with. I agree. There's Asian variants that are popping up. 
So one of the more recent ones is Liam Nikuro, a Japanese-American influencer, air quotes, living between Tokyo and LA who's trying to break into the music industry. So from here on out, I'll just refer to the influencer by Liam, his first name. He's the brainchild of a Tokyo-based company called OneSec, who dubbed themselves as a virtual human planning and production company. And according to OneSec CEO and creator Hirokuni Jini Miyagi, he may be fake, but he has a real personality and he will touch on real human issues. And this is in relation to Liam. And his aesthetic, I'm obviously you guys are listening to this right now, but we'll we'll share a picture in in the show notes. His aesthetic was intended to be a face like Justin Bieber's, but more Asian. I guess that's the the standard of beauty. So the music angle that surrounds Liam was actually considered based on the popularity of Grammy-nominated K-pop group BTS. Yeah. So what the ultimate storyline behind Liam is that he's trying to leverage Asian entertainment and its current sort of popularity and hopefully push this virtual influencer to win a Grammy at some point. So I think this is something that that's like the goal, but it's also like something that they seem quite serious about. It's not just like, hey, this is my story. I'm going to try to win a Grammy. It's actually trying to do it. Yeah, like he's actually producing music. Correct. So this is not a real person. There's no person who was born 21 years ago named Liam, but there will be an artist who is producing music under that name, which is why, like, I think for me, it's, it's not that I don't understand it, but it's like, wrapping your mind around it yes so ultimately this is actually the part that i i should have elaborated on more but yeah they're looking for someone to represent the voice of liam so they're still like out finding who whose human voice will represent him mm-hmm. but that is like part of the missing puzzle piece currently yeah like we don't know what he sounds like yet and then within his whole team there's actually five people that work to maintain uh, Liam's virtual presence. So three people are actually in charge of rendering his face, and the CEO, who we mentioned before, Miyagi, controls the tone of his voice. Mm-hmm. So tone of voice. And just for anyone who is curious, the way this works, which is something I wondered about Lil Michaela for the longest time, is there's a real stand-in model who is photographed in environments, and then that model is digitally altered to appear like these virtual people. So it's not like the entire thing is fabricated. That's why it can look so real. Um, but I think that despite the the realism, it's still a little bit off. Like you can still tell. But that's like part of it, right? Like we're going to talk about that is yeah. the intention is not to fake people out into thinking that this is a real person that you can meet. Mm, I think maybe we should hold on to that point because I think we should come back to that. Okay. So further on in the piece, they bring in Dr. Walter Greenleaf of Stanford University's Virtual Human Interaction Lab, who suggests that immersing young children into the world of VR, AR, could be a challenge when they struggle to distinguish reality, which makes sense. I think that mm-hmm. now, knowing that certain things are are up for interpretation, even on a media level, right? Even the quality of news is up for debate. Yeah. And now you're adding in something else. And this is something we talked about before. I don't think there's sufficient amounts of education around making sure people understand what is real, what is fake, critical thought analysis. Yeah. And this already compounds it. Oh, definitely. 
Definitely, right? Definitely. So we, we, like, we agree. I can't imagine. I remember this conversation we had, and I and I came down really strong on the fact that like young people were talking like under twelve, definitely need more coaching and not coaching, like need more guidance or teaching around the internet and what's fake and what's real and what's healthy and what's not. And the fact that now people can be fake is. I just I can't imagine growing up and trying to sort that out. I, th- I think that continuing on, if it wasn't entirely apparent, like why these virtual influencers are a welcome change, for a lot of people, they believe that what's good about these influencers is that they're always going to have this squeaky clean image. There's no room for error, essentially. Like they're not going to mess up. And this story also pulls an interesting quote from Miyagi who says that, Real people will age, get sick, and start scandals, like Pierre Takai. For those unfamiliar with Takai, me included, he was the frontman for a Japanese synth pop group known as Denki Groove, who was canned for cocaine use by his management. Mm-hmm. Another insight through the piece was from Kathy Hackle, a futurist and co-author of Marketing New Realities, an Introduction to VR and AR Marketing, Branding, and Communications who believes that these virtual influencers are more authentic and purposeful. How can that be? Sorry, I don't want to jump in, but like, I I just don't understand that logic. Yeah, I definitely don't agree with that either. I like 150% disagree with that. Um, But so let let me go through the pros, because I think the pros themselves are actually so short (sighs) and limited, but the cons are immense, right? (laughs) Yeah, let's let's talk about the pros. I think that the pros really are just about narrative creation becomes a lot easier, like a lot more effective. Like basically it's a fake person, right? Like any model can stand in. I can be in Japan today, uh, Brazil tomorrow, or -hmm. I can even do that within one day. Yeah. Right. However, which I want to do it. Like I think there's cost savings there. Oh, definitely. That's the only way I can really look at it. Because as much as you want to say that there's a level of this sort of squeaky clean image that accompanies virtual influencers you're also under the belief that the team that is organizing and creating these influencers are representative of the right intentions wait sorry is your pro list literally just that i can't think of anything else to be honest like i think that the things that they're they're no what i want to do is like whatever is seen as a pro i actually want to deconstruct it and say that it's actually a con. Okay, so like the only actually, pro that you feel like you can objectively say economic savings. Yeah. All right, just checking. I mean, that's not a list, there man. there that are small things point. too, like aesthetical things, like they can look a certain way. But I think that we've seen over the course of culture that even beauty standards change, right? Yeah, that's true. So okay, let's, you let's can't get really into, control that. Let's go back. I, I just wanted to clarify that your list was one thing. So you're deconstructing <laughs> the pro. That so yeah, like. I, I think ultimately, if you think about it, so we would probably agree that most virtual influencers themselves can be seen as somebody who is, as they mentioned, they're immune to scandals, to controversy, et cetera. But think of everything on the spectrum, right? Like most of these virtual influencers are probably left left to center liberal. So let's say one of these influencers is is pro-choice. There's nothing really stopping another virtual influencer from popping up and representing the other side. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, you've kind of negated that sort of squeaky clean image because squeaky clean is also relative based on your beliefs. Yeah. Like, I 
don't actually think they are free from scandal or controversy because, as you said, even though it's not a real person, this persona, this virtual person, is made by real people who have real views. So unless the virtual influencer is used for just purely aesthetics and never says anything, never writes anything, then but then they lose connection, right? Yeah, that's kind that's of what, what I'm people like, want. Once you post anything, which and some of the stuff that Liam has posted, I would not say is free from scandal or controversy. Like, I actually didn't even look at it. I just like I just thought it was the same bullshit, same candy coated bullshit as everything else. No, I mean, did you read this in the article? I read it in the article, but I didn't go as far as like exploring further. No, I didn't explore further. I read okay, this in the article. Okay. He says with protests in Hong Kong intensifying. Geopolitical yes. tensions rising and earthquakes hitting Nagata, Japan. Seems like I've only seen negative headlines in the news ever since the start of the Reiwa era. So this summer, I'm going to start announcing projects that I think will make the world a brighter place. And I was like, I don't even know if a real human would say that. Who had like a PR person advising them? Yeah. And I want to use actually another example that's adjacent. And this example is when you have the front facing brand, you're definitely not immune to what's happening from the people that control the brand. So I don't know if you heard this whole Equinox and Soul Cycle issue that yeah. popped up. Yeah, so but basically, let's explain it for the listeners. Yeah. So basically the issue that arose was that billionaire Stephen Ross, who's the majority owner of Equinox Fitness's parent company related companies, and for those unfamiliar, it's primarily a North American fitness brand, like a high end 150 US, 200 dollar a month gym. gym right yeah right he was throwing a new york fundraiser for president trump mm-hmm. so this is an example of the brand itself actually is quite strong i'd say soul cycle equinox like probably for the most part seen as the top tier of fitness brands yeah and suddenly something that's happened unrelated to the brand itself is now basically making things really messy for people that go to the gym, people that work there, etc. I think to so, be more clear, in your statement, I would say something that happened that is unrelated to the product that Equinox correct. and SoulCycle preserve. Because actually what has happened is their brand has been damaged because their brand yes. is linked to Stephen Ross. And because of the fundraiser, then linked to Trump and everything Trump stands for. And therefore, symbolically, Equinox and SoulCycle get wrapped up in representing the Trump administration agenda. Yes. Actually, I think a lot of people think Equinox and SoulCycle are decent gym memberships. For Yeah, they're expensive, they but are. they're pretty good, I yeah. would say. Yes. Yeah, so relating that to Liam, you were going to say? I was going to say that you can't really divorce the two as long as there is a human who is valuable behind the scenes. Let's say that behind the scenes, Miyagi decides to support a political candidate who has controversial views. This will inevitably be linked back to Liam, right? Mm-hmm. For better or worse. Yeah. And also, I think it's naive to think that anything humanoid is separate from controversy. Because in our current climate, it can be as simple as the clothes you're wearing. So even yeah. though he's a virtual persona, he still makes clothes and well, someone is making clothing and footwear choices for him. And did you hear about the recent... Versace, Givenchy, Coach. Yes. Man, this is like all of the recent news just packed into this subject. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you should so, just 
give give a quick like 10 second overview well you'll yeah. probably need more than 10 seconds so versace gavanchi coach released similar t-shirts recently that were kind of in this like tour t-shirt format like a band tour t-shirt and on the back of the shirts there were lists of tour locations the whole thing is fake there's no like versace tour but on these country list they had listed hong kong as its own country like hong kong comma hong kong and then macau as macau comma macau and these chinese netizens were outraged by this and said listen the format is city comma country and so it's like beijing comma china so why is it hong kong comma hong kong and macau comma macau and then coach gavanchi and versace were like oh my gosh we're so sorry we apologize for this whole thing we're recalling the products they're not like for sale sorry they're not recalling they stopped selling them like put them down yeah like honestly if you want to be a commentator on geopolitics you need to be so incredibly aware like i don't think some designer in italy is really familiar with the the sensitivity of geopolitics in this part of the world just like liam just like liam is probably not entirely familiar when he makes that comment on hong kong yeah right there's so much nuance there and like i think that ultimately these are things that you can't be the catch-all influencer for like positive thoughts period exactly exactly it's not possible to represent everything cheerful and positive to all people at the same time it's just it's i just can't believe that they would think this is the more authentic way to go about (sighs) i guess maybe maybe the two points that i want to touch upon in the end here Mm -hmm. number one is what is a successful virtual influencer and how easy or hard is it to attain and first and foremost virtual influencers need audience and building audience today on most social media platforms is incredibly challenging. Mm-hmm. Liam only has 11,000 followers, which is not a small amount, but definitely not at the scale that's required for him to probably pay five people. Yeah. Right? That's one way of looking at it. That's going to be increasingly more difficult. I think that the moments of Lil Michaela having 1.5 million followers, that's probably going to be you know more so first to the game very unique sort of positioning but after that everyone else will probably have a lot of challenges to get to that level i just think that so your question was you know what makes for a successful virtual influencer and it was more of a rhetorical question it was more like i know what i know what it is but i just think that it'll be increasingly difficult for them to get what they need to justify oh i have a totally different answer that's not okay. about that. I was going to say, I don't really see the point in making a virtual influencer as human as possible. Like, technically, it's pretty cool. Like, I actually have to say that's maybe the pro of virtual influencers is I think the tech they're using to make the appearances of these people is pretty interesting and aesthetically kind of fascinating. But I don't see the point in terms of making an influencer as human as possible when you could do like all kinds of crazy things and what actually comes to mind for me is the gorillas are you familiar yeah and the gorillas all have these cartoon like they're they don't look like virtual influencers right like they're like these 2d cartoons but they do things that humans can't do right and they're like animated in ways that are you know just like humans can't do as in like jumping like physically you know like really out of this world kind of stuff and 
that's really interesting. Maybe there's a room for that. Like, maybe there should be a virtual superhero influencer. And that would actually make more sense with the tech that you have and what you're doing. Yeah, there's some interesting cartoon influencers that I follow. Oh, really? That are exactly, I was trying to find it. You know what, it's, it's annoying because I want to reference it every so often, but I always forget what his name is and he isn't seen nearly enough on my feed. But I think that's, I think that's the more interesting angle. What I, what I thought was interesting was the narrative created around it where suddenly you're just basically watching a show. And I think yeah. watching a show is much more interesting and fascinating and also gives more room for variance yeah. than it needing to be a, like a human representation. 100% agree with yeah. that. Thank you. The other part that I'm curious about is that if it does try to be more human focused, do we really want someone that's perfect? Like, I think this day and age, like, I think there was a point in time when, you know, early Instagram, where we were all looking for those aspirational places and moments. I think now we've all recognized that we're pulling back from that. So to actually be this person that has no controversy, I don't necessarily know if that is authentic. And this was sort of the underlying discussion we had at the very beginning was like, what is authenticity, right? Uh, My secondary point to that is, I think that we as humans, especially more recently, are are connecting with struggle and challenge. I think there's also part of us that really enjoys the underdog story or overcoming challenges that are probably more powerful than you, the virtual influencer, making some sort of outlandish positive opinion on something that's lacking self-awareness. Yeah. I mean, I think that what we look for is to see people that are similar to us and how they deal with situations. And like you said, how they overcome those situations, how they rise above it. And how am I going to relate to a virtual influencer who has nothing in common with me? Unless unless the virtual influencer decides to take a much more balanced approach where, and actually this would be perfect if they were, if they had the self-awareness to do this and like, Maybe uh, this this is more for the sake of argument, but let's say like out of five posts that they share on Instagram or whatever medium, three of them are positive, one's neutral, and one is sort of negative in the sense of this is how, how I feel today and I don't feel well, right? Yeah. I think that to me becomes a little bit more realistic. And in my experience, and it's starting to become a pretty clear sort of narrative, when I talk about challenges, when I talk about things that are happening with me or 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 shitty things that i've I've been feeling mm-hmm. uh, and I express it publicly through making, I usually get a lot of good feedback, yeah, you do right, and that's the one thing i I believe to be the the missing piece, and everybody loves vulnerable Eugene well exactly right, but I think that there's a lot of ways of of weaving that in and i it's yeah. not that it's impossible, but it's just making sure you're really good at the tone of voice, all that stuff. Well, it's interesting because I just said, how am I going to relate to a virtual influencer? But then it just hit me that like I really love animations. So mm-hmm. one of my favorite animations is BoJack Horseman. And the main character, BoJack Horseman, also tweets as BoJack Horseman, the character. And I'm only just realizing that 
I totally identify with this fabricated character. But it goes back to what you said about like watching a story and seeing this entire narrative, which is what makes Bojack Horseman, the animated cartoon horse, different from Liam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's all I have on my end. Like, I think the the virtual influencer world will not go away, but it needs to change and reposition its stance. Yeah, I think they need to drop this agenda of being scandal-free. Yeah. And in fact, wouldn't it be an opportunity, I don't know if companies would do that, but wouldn't it be an opportunity, like, not to be preachy, but to say, like, this is a way that you can overcome a problem. Like, let's say the Pierre Taki story about having a cocaine addiction. Could you have a virtual influencer who, you know, did cocaine, but then had a story revolving around that where the outcome yeah. isn't like, I was getting thinking fired? Something similar. I was thinking, like, uh, the easiest one is, like, celebrity sex tapes. Like, imagine virtual influencer has their phone compromised and all of a sudden this is, like, it all fits within the storyline mm-hmm, narrative, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which I think would be really interesting because it humanizes the challenge and it's a challenge that is relatable because we've seen it, but no yeah. one, like you would never have, maybe you would, but like let's say Paris Hilton or whoever goes on the record and talks very honestly about it. Yeah. So yeah, you, but it, it basically becomes like a pseudonym, right? It becomes like a an, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. someone that can relate back to you through this sort of celebrity culture type persona. Yeah, but it would still give the creators the control that they apparently want to have, where yeah. they know how the narrative around the scandal is going to unravel, like how that is going to transpire. That's all it from my end. I think we did a pretty good job of packaging that up at the end. Yeah, that was good. I think that's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in learning more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.